Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, um, we will have it on the screen, but just encourage you guys to be active. Oh, Dan, already. Right, no, is L, is that for large print or lose? The, oh, Dante, respect your elders, man. Um, if maybe, uh, there we go, we got one coming to you. We got like three guys fighting over who gets to hand out the one. By- oh, Lindsay wants one. Anybody else? Now's the time. You won't be... Okay, Renee, Mario. Praise God, there's a revival happening this morning. People wanting their Bibles. Woo! And as those Bibles are getting passed out, let's pray together over our time in the Word. Lord Jesus, uh, as we are in a, uh, an in-depth teaching this morning, God, where, um, Lord, I've just been like plunged into... Um, so much information regarding the leadership of the church, Lord, and just trying to get it on paper to present to the flock. Um, It's been a tough task, Lord. And so I pray that your spirit would give us um, the ability, Lord, me, the ability to speak in clarity. And Lord, would you give the congregation an extra amount of just um, uh, depth of knowledge this morning and even attentiveness and just the ability to labor in your word this morning. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would just lead us into all things that you have for the church. And as a, as a line has been drawn in the sand through this church series as to whether or not we will obey you and your plan for this church, God, I pray that you would foster in us obedience to your ways. As, as Tammy was led by the Spirit today to just sing... Um, that uh, I'll obey, I'll trust and obey. And Lord, as we sing that, Lord, let us trust you. Let us surrender to your will and to your ways for this church, for Calvary Chapel of Crook County. It's your church. Would you build it by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning? Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, did you hear about the preacher who went uh, went to visit an elderly woman in his church who had just had an operation? As he was sitting there talking to her, he noticed a bowl of peanuts on the stand next to her bed. So he began to eat them, and soon it was time for him to leave. When he got up, he noticed he'd eaten all of her peanuts. So he said, Sister Jones, I am so sorry I ate all of your peanuts. She replied, That's okay, Pastor. I already sucked all of the chocolate off of them anyways. (laughs) You've heard that one, right? (laughs) Or have you heard about the deacon? And the preacher, who'd been really good friends for a long time, and one day the deacon got sick and was taken to the hospital, so the preacher rushed to go and to visit his old friend. When he walked into the hospital room, the preacher noticed all of the hoses and things that were coming out of the deacon's body, so the preacher walked over and kneeled by the bed and said, How you doing? The deacon motioned to a pad and pen by his nightstand. You want that? The preacher asked him, and the deacon nodded his head yes. So the preacher handed his friend the pad and pen, and the deacon began to write. All of a sudden, the deacon fell over dead. At his funeral, the preacher was asked to deliver the service. He was a good man, and I'll never forget him, he said. I was with him when he died, and as a matter of fact, I think I still have the message of his last thoughts in my coat pocket right here. The preacher reaches into his pocket, pulls out the paper, and reads, Please get up! You're kneeling on my oxygen line! Well, I think we're done. We'll have the worship team come on up and we'll close this morning. <laughs> the definition that we've been familiar with during this church series and just the first part of the definition for the sake of time this morning is that the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to the scripture. They, un- they 
uh, organize under qualified leadership. And so as we're going to see today, these leaders are faithful to to the task of loving and leading and tending and protecting, even at great cost to themselves, included but not limited to eating peanuts that had recently been covered in chocolate or a deacon dying after trying to ease the burden of a pastor. We've been talking much about obligations and responsibilities and duties that you might have if you consider yourself a member of this congregation, the duties, responsibilities, and privileges that you have here. Uh, and there's been many. There's been about six that we've looked at in the last seven weeks. And, and uh, this morning, the obligation that we want to look at is also a beautiful privilege. And that is that you have the duty or the obligation to be led by the elders of this flock or the pastors of this flock. And you have the privilege to be led, to be nurtured, to be tended, and to be cared for by the elders of this local congregation. The elders, in turn, have an obligation towards you and a responsibility towards you as a member of this local congregation. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it reads, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partakers of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to, the, uh, to you, but being examples to the flocks. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We read here of the leaders that they are called shepherds. Now, Israel in the Old Testament understood well what a shepherd was. They understood the role of shepherd or pastors. In fact, uh, the Israelites understood the Lord to be their shepherd and their pastor. They would dub themselves, we are the sheep of his pasture. In Isaiah, uh, it's written that he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs into his arms and carries them close to his heart. The great shepherd of Israel exercised his shepherding through the headship and the leadership of human pastors. Some of us call them under-shepherds. The scriptures call Moses a shepherd to Israel. Joshua is called the shepherd of God's people. The Holy Spirit assigns the task to David himself is that you will shepherd my people Israel, 2 Samuel 5.5. It's a common thing for the leaders in Israel to be referred to as shepherds, whether that meant they were uh, kings or prophets or priests. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know, especially the priests, Uh, that were unfaithful, radically unfaithful to that task. They would ignore God's people's needs. They would lead them into idolatry. They would exploit them for their own personal gain and neglect the flock. And in light of that, severe judgment was spoken towards those shepherds. Woe to you was a statement of severe judgment in their case. There's two promises, though, in the light of all the failures of the shepherds of the Old Testament. When God says, he says, I will directly assume myself the shepherding responsibilities over Israel. And he also promises to send a new shepherd who would be the greatest of all shepherds and come through as a direct descendant of David himself. Who was this man? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, in the Christmas story, when the wise men come into Jerusalem, they go and and talk to Herod about where the king of the Jews would be born. That gets Herod on a jealous rampage, and he tries to track down the Jewish king himself. And so he brings the priests in, and the priests knew well the prophecy out of Malachi when it says that there in Bethlehem of Judea and Judah, out of you shall come a ruler, and he will shepherd my people Israel. So who is this new and better, great and faithful shepherd that the Old Testament prophesies up? It's Jesus himself. 
In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the fulfillment of everything this prophesied shepherd was going to be. And even though he's ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father as the great shepherd, he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he has sent shepherds to help oversee this flock under shepherds. And so as we look at this study of leadership, elders, even deacons a little bit this morning, it's going to have three basic forms of application to us this morning. First of all, to the elders, uh, to Kevin, who's teaching in Lapine this morning, to Chad, who's back teaching in the children's ministry this morning, and to myself. We feel the sting of a study such as this very deeply. Uh, we come with open hands to the Lord to change us and to perhaps change the model of the church structure and leadership. It's very obvious to us as we do a study like this on leadership. But this also may apply very well to those of you who aspire to church leadership in the congregation, for those of you that have been feeling the beckoning and the calling of the Holy Spirit to be part of the elder board of this church or to be part of the deacon team here, uh, have your ears open this morning to hear from the Holy Spirit. You might even be called to such a service today in this, in this uh, message. Thirdly, it applies to all of us. It's a relevant message to all of us who are to come under the authority of leadership uh, with an oversight of the church. Uh, if you've ever been part of a church that's been split or has had a division, more often than not, it's uh, a split between the leadership or the leadership in the congregation. And to some degree, uh, the leadership is chastised or derided. And uh, if you look at some of the surveys that have been taken out there, one of the recent surveys was a completed computerized survey of 100 or 1,643 different congregations where uh, all of the information came to describe the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor, according to this survey, is a man that preaches exactly 15 minutes every Sunday. He condemns sin, but never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 a.m. till midnight and is also the janitor. <laughs> he makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old and has been preaching for 25 years. He's wonderfully gentle and handsome. He loves to work with teenagers and spend countless hours with the senior citizens at the senior center. He makes 15 calls a day to parish families, shut-ins, and hospital uh, patients, and he's always in his office when needed. Some of those things might be something that you've had on your list of what a pastor should be, and some of you have been sorely disappointed. May all of our opinions be transformed by the light of God's word this morning, and, uh, and all of our expectations that we have towards our elders, our shepherds, and our pastors be conformed to the image of the word of God this morning. In the scriptures that we read, five verses up on the screen in 1 Peter chapter 5, we had it divided basically into three categories that are easy to follow through. Verse 1 shows us the task assigned. Who is supposed to lead the church? Verses 2 and 3, the task defined. How do they lead the church? And thirdly, in verse 4, the task rewarded. What is their compensation? So first of all, let's look at verse 1. The task assigned. Who leads the church? In verse 1, it says, The elder, elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, you notice that Peter is writing this, and he writes with such an incredible tone of humility. He had every right to, to just throw out there his, in pompous bragging, writes, uh, that I was an apostle. In fact, I was in the core group of Jesus himself. 
Me, James, and John, we went on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I saw Jesus shining whiter than any bright laundry garments could ever be washed, you know. Uh, He says, I was the one that um, was given the keys of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16. I was the one who was the first preacher in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and 5,000 people came to Jesus. I was the one in Acts chapter 10 who led the first Gentiles to Christ, you know, and so on and so forth. But that's not at all what we see. We see an extreme tone of humility. I'm a fellow sufferer with you guys. I'm one who's looking for the prize. I'm one who's suffering along with you. In fact, there's a thread of suffering all throughout the, the book of First Peter, and the, the, the context of it all says that the more violent the times, the more vulnerable the flock is, the more pressing need there is for good shepherds and faithful leaders. Greater opposition against the gospel and suffering means greater attack on the sheep and the need for men who will shepherd the flock of God at all costs. And so Peter comes with humility saying, look guys, I'm really no better than you. I'm just a fellow laborer. I'm co-laborers. I'm your comrade. I'm your friend. We're in this together and I've got a plea. I've got an urge. I've got a command. Shepherd the flock. Get to the task at hand, men. We have a vital need for godly leaders who will take up responsibility and leadership. And so he says in humility, a direction to a group of men called elders. Now, sometimes the word elderos is used to speak of older men or older brother in the prodigal son story. But more often than not, it speaks of the maturity of a man, not necessarily the age. We're speaking of a spiritual maturity when we talk of elders within the church. Uh, even in the secular realm, there would be a council of men who would provide leadership on some sort of level, whether that was in the community, in the court systems, or um, within the religious or, or even secular realm. Uh, under the direction of Jesus, the disciples built upon what seemed to be familiar to the culture, and this was extended throughout church history. This became the regular model to have elders in leadership among local congregations of covenant believers, people who said, we are a part of this local body. And this became the apostolic model of church government. Not what we see so often in the churches today of what's called an Episcopal model, which is a governing body uh, external to the church, uh, bearing authority over the church, passing its directives down to the church. That would be more of an Episcopal model of church government. Nor do we see biblically a congregational model of church membership, where entire memberships function as the governing body. It's like a democracy where everybody votes. Children's ministry is getting new carpet. 39 say green, 45 say blue, so blue it is. Um, And so that's just a small aspect of what a voting congregation would tend to see in its leadership structure. But rather what we see in the scriptures is a group of recognized men from within the congregation appointed and set aside to provide full pastoral oversight, leadership, and direction. In the New Testament, these men are referred to as elders or bishops or deacons, or not deacons, sorry, different group of guys, uh, or bishops and deacons just seem to go together every time you say it. Bishops and deacons, that's just common. Okay, uh, elders, pastors, shepherds, bishop, or overseers are the common phrase that are used interchangeably in the New Testament. In fact, here in what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see three of those. It's to the elders among you, be pastors and shepherds over God's flock, serve as overseers. These different words can be used interchangeably to describe a pastor's title as well as his, his duty and function. Uh, we're going to look through a whole bunch of New Testament scriptures that specifically mention elders, and we're going to try to discern some sort of pattern in these passages to see if the description of the elder and who is to rule the church uh, is, is uh, seen in all of these scriptures. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 is where we're going to start this morning. Um, 
the church had expanded into Antioch. This was north of Syria. Barnabas and Paul were preaching. Many people were converted. And Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. And it's here that uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So one of the first mentioning of elders in the book of um, Acts, and, and as the term itself is there, elders. Uh, but we see two simple things here in this passage. It's assumed that these were the men responsible for the financial affairs of the church because the money was given to them. And secondly, we don't read of one elder, but a group of elders. We read of a plurality of elders here. All right, so we're going to move on to Acts chapter 14, verse 21 through 23. When they preached the gospel, to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them with many words, uh, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And then I think this is what we have on the screen for you. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, interesting that the tribulations also led to the pointing of elders here, but three things we see from the text is, first of all, they were men who were appointed to the task, as you see there in verse 23, they appointed elders in every city. Secondly, they functioned in a plurality, it's elders in every church, not one elder. Uh, and then thirdly, this was the established pattern for each church. It says they appointed elders in every church. Moving right along, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right. Uh, then, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. In verse 4 of Acts chapter 15, And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done to them. Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, whose name was Barsabas, and Silas, and the leading among among, men among the brethren. Verse 23, they, note, they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. And so we have this ginormous moment in church history where the church is beginning to spread across the globe and some men come who are Jewish and have that Jewish background and they say, man, you can't be you know, leading the, these Gentiles to Christ and not having them be circumcised. If they're going to be saved, they've got to be circumcised. In fact, they've got to be circumcised to be saved. And so this great conflict arose and so they decided to go and not only meet with the apostles, those that walked hand in hand with Jesus in his ministry on earth, but they met with the elders as well. And there was no small dispute but finally, in the outcome, they sent a letter out by the hands of the apostles and the elders or the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And as you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 4, the saga continues as it says, They went throughout the cities and they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So, a few things to notice here, four things actually. The elders were a recognized group of men within the church. Paul recognized their authority and submitted to their authority. They functioned in a plurality, 
They were vitally connected to the doctrinal integrity of the church. In fact, that's something that tells us what the elders, one of the main roles of the elders is to be within the church, is preserving the doctrinal integrity. And uh, their decision, uh, they were the decision-making body within the congregation. Moving right along through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Love to hear all those pages flipping. That's like music to my ears. Also, the sound of the projector turning is very beautiful. <laughs> for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders. Okay, so Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops. He can't make it into Ephesus, but he decides to bring Ephesus to him. So he has the elders, the representatives of the church, come and meet him by the coast. All right? Verse 28 there says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he'd purchased with his own blood. For I for know this, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Uh, so basically, Paul is exhorting the elders in six different things. First of all, what we can notice, these elders are a recognized group within the Ephesian church and they're sent to meet Paul. There's not one elder that's sent over from Ephesus, but a plurality of elders that are sent over. They have the responsibility to exercise oversight. As it says there, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's a responsibility there for oversight. This has been given to them by the Holy Spirit. Who has anointed them for this ministry? Is it something they took on for themselves? Or is it something that was placed in them and anointed upon them by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, certainly. They are pastors of the church, and they are guardians of the doctrinal integrity of the church. Acts chapter 20 is incredibly pillar uh, in an elder's life. My heart always goes back to Acts chapter 20 to be reminded of my roles and my duties to this congregation. That uh, the encouragement goes towards, Rory, I'm the one that brought you here. It wasn't men that brought you here. It wasn't any man that, that appointed you. Ultimately, it was me. I made you an overseer. Uh, we're to shepherd, the word shepherd there. And uh, it's one, one beautiful thing about this passage is that those terms are all used interchangeably in Acts 20. Your elders, uh, overseers, bishops, uh, episkopos is what it is in the Greek. Shepherds, okay? It's all seen there. And, uh, and they're to be guardians over the doctrinal integrity of the church, that even elders... Uh, would, would come into the church and they would um, bring doctrinal perversity in. And so we need to be Bereans and search the scriptures, even in our elders' meetings, and challenge each other. And don't just take uh, anything anyone says as fact. We look at the word as our main authority. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, the letters addressed to, uh, from Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in G uh, Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. So it's there that we see two things. First of all, the overseers are a recognized group within the church. Second, they function in plurality. And something interesting that we'll get into a little bit later here, there's another group mentioned leading the church called deacons or servants. They are office bearers called diakonos, uh, the deacons within the church. Uh, that brings us to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see qualifications laid out for bishops or elders or pastors, as well as qualifications laid out for deacons or those that would serve in the office of deacon within a church. So let's look at those qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. 
This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. You might just underline that one. Able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Then we move on to qualifications of deacons. Uh, The list is similar, and there's some slight differences, though. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, and actually the word there for wife can just be uh, women deacon is what it could be referring to there. Uh, They must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who've served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And one thing I love about this description of deacons is, 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 and we've seen it before within the church, that a man or a woman that serves well in the deacon, deaconess position or office within the church becomes very bold to preach the gospel. We see that right away in the book of Acts after Acts chapter 6 um, when uh, uh, Stephen and Philip, who are the first couple of the first deacons, uh, Stephen goes out and starts preaching the gospel before the Sanhedrin and uh, he becomes immediately the first church martyr that we'd ever seen. And then a little bit later we see in Acts chapter 8, Philip, who's a faithful deacon, becoming an evangelist and leading a revival in Samaria. Later on in the book of Acts, his name is Philip the Evangelist. So how wonderful that as a man or a woman serves faithfully as a deacon, they obtain for themselves great boldness and a good standing in the faith of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, as we go back real quick, just kind of backtrack uh, to verses 1 through 7 and looking at these qualifications, it's interesting to note that it's a noble thing to, to desire the, the office of a bishop or an elder or of an overseer or a pastor. There's this aspiration within a man that is given by the Holy Spirit that is a righteous desire. And of course, there are men that can be battling, uh, battle a perversion of that where they would want to uh, become an elder to be seen or to be up front or to be heard or to accomplish his own agenda. And that certainly has to be tested out uh, as elders are appointed. But all in all, you know, as you look at the word, it's a noble thing that a man wants to be part of shepherding and overseeing the local congregation. With that being said, if you have a desire to be an elder and to be equipped and to be trained within this church, if you have a motivation towards that ministry, that's a beautiful thing. And we encourage you to talk to the elders, talk to myself, maybe put a slip back in the tithe box, just a note saying, call me, I'd love to just... Uh, talk with you about that, work towards that. We've got training material right now that we elders have uh, developed to um, some resources and things to start getting you in that direction towards being an overseer uh, in this church, if that's a desire that you have. Uh, But that desire needs to be balanced with some moral, spiritual, and ministerial qualifications that we read about here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When we appoint elders, we look for men that are already elding without the title given to them. We look for people that are already uh, being elders, even though they don't have the name tag or the lanyard around their neck. We look for men who are fat, believe it or not, faithful, available, and teachable to what God is doing in this body. And boy, howdy, we have become fat. Seriously, we need as much help as we can get. Um, 
They are at the regular meetings of the church. They are serving and loving the sheep already, oftentimes at great cost and personal sacrifice to themselves and to their families. And so it's at this point, after some theological framework of what the elders is, that we have some uh, exciting news. As Chad, Kevin, and myself were pleased to announce a man who is in the final stage of elder candidacy here at the church. And uh, I'm going to read something that I just wrote up this morning in my office. Aaron Mapes, wave your hand, good old buddy right there, praise God. Aaron Mapes is a man who we've noticed in the past two years has not only showed his life to be one of character and integrity, but one of function and above all, love towards the sheep for the flock day and night with tears. He's been a faithful home group leader for two years, a core group leader for a year, not only leading, but truly shepherding the sheep and loving the flock. He's risen to challenges and persevered through tough questions and situations. We are also encouraged to see his wife, Stephanie, as a woman nearly equal to the task, perhaps even his greatest qualification. Though not appointed to be an elder, God's given Aaron a help meet with the same burning heart for the sheep, especially the women of this flock, and four lovely daughters who are showing fruit of relationship with Jesus, relationships that no doubt have been fostered by parents who are shepherding their homes as they love the sheep and God simultaneously. We realize with two services, you may not know who Aaron is, so the next month we encourage you to seek him out. Uh, in fact, he even just came in from second service from serving back in the children's ministry just so that you guys could get a glimpse of who he is. We ask in this next month that you would pray for him and encourage him. During this month's time, if anyone would like to share concerns or encouragement regarding this recognition, we welcome you to contact one of the elders or myself. By the end of this month, on April 7th, we plan on laying hands on Aaron in recognition of his calling to be an elder in this local church. And it's a very exciting thing. All right, get back there and help those little kids out. <laughs> if you can preach the gospel to a five-year-old, you can preach the gospel to anybody. So, A second office that's mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are the servants or the deacons, the men who must also possess a qualified life. A uh, quick short side note, moving from elders to deacons and then back to elders again, but deacons, as Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3.3 mentions them, uh, right behind the elders there, uh, we want to see just the origination of that office. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, in those days, the number of the disciples was multiplying. There arose a complaint at the soup kitchen by the Hebrews, uh, from the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not reasonable that we leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen and, and a bunch of other guys there for the sake of time. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them after they were set before the apostle. Verse 7, then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we have deacons here. And even in the New Testament, we have deaconesses, Phoebe, Tryphena, Tryphosa, all in Romans chapter 16. We see that the deacons are men or women who ease the pressure and burdens from the elders so that the elders may fulfill the ministry of prayer and the studying of the word of God. They are focused more, though not entirely, on the practical needs of the church and the helpful, merciful needs of the church, while the elders are focused more on the spiritual needs of the church. They are men or women of good character and of good reputation. 
They are men, as we read there in Acts chapter 6, they are men or women full of the Holy Spirit. They're on fire, essentially. Uh, They're full of wisdom, full of faith. Those who serve well obtain great boldness and good standing in the faith, as we mentioned before. The main differences between elders and deacons is this, the ability to teach. Deacons may not always be poor teachers, but they give more of their efforts and more of their giftings on the scenes of practical help and mercy ministries of the church. As there's a slight variation in the office um, that seems to be the teaching capacity of the servant, much of what is said during this ministry is also applicable to the deacons or those who aspire towards a deacon-deaconess ministry. In the 11 years of of Calvary Chapel Crook County's existence, there's not been the official recognized office of deacon and deaconess. Cool thing is, is that God is moving our elders and recognizing those who meet the qualifications of both character and function. Those who are already deaconing and deaconessing, uh, who have lives worthy of emulation, who say, come follow me as I follow Christ and serve Christ. And so currently in our elders meetings and in our elders discussions, we are praying, not wanting to lay hands on anyone hastily, uh, as, Paul observe, uh, as Paul speaks to Timothy, but rather observe a testing period. Uh, and so in a few weeks, we will probably be um, coming before you again. Uh, we will be, actually, coming before you again in recognition of those who are um, exercising an oversight uh, capacity over ministries in this church, namely deacons and deaconesses. So be praying for those individuals as well. First uh, Timothy chapter five verse seventeen, continuing on on the on the vein of who are the elders and who is to lead the church, uh, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages." Do not receive an accusation against the elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. Five things we see here. The elders function in a plurality. The elders oversee the church and direct the affairs of the church. They lead the church. Notice among the elders, there may be one who exercises or whose responsibilities are almost entirely devoted to the work of preaching and teaching. In the original text, it reads this. Here is a man who works to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching. It's basically what Ephesians 4 5 is speaking of when Paul speaks of pastors, teachers, uh, the pastor teacher ministry. Notice also that if they're faithful to the task, they're worthy of double honor. And notice that they're not beyond accountability, that elders aren't above being called out in sin. In fact, elders are to be held accountable, but not without the witnesses of two or three. In Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9, Titus is uh, Paul's apostolic representative in Crete, and he writes this, For this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. A few things to notice here. Uh, A congregation was considered incomplete without functioning elders, as it says there, things are lacking. Appoint elders. These were men appointed to the task by other spiritual leaders. These elders functioned in a plurality. These men needed to possess a certain moral, spiritual, and ministerial qualification. As Titus is instructed later on there, uh, a whole other list there of qualifications actually is right hand in hand there with uh, Timothy's instructions. In James chapter 5, verse 14, if anyone is among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have 
a recognized group of leaders in the church. They function in a plurality, and the function includes praying for those who are physically ill. And for the record, this church government is set up so that it's not uh, one pastor who uh, basically is the final authority, but we have what's called a plurality of elders, where I'm just the lead among equals. Uh, I'm kind of the representative. I'm the one who's paid to just always be doing these things. Uh, I'm the spokesperson for the board of the elders, and uh, but we don't make decisions without praying through them together, uh, fasting together, you know, searching the scripture together, and um, just wanted to uh, inform you guys that uh, the real senior pastor, the real chief shepherd of the flock, isn't Rory Rogers. It's Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has set it up to have under-shepherds who keep each other accountable so that we can finish strong and protect the flock together. So uh, that is how this church government is set up. It's actually a little bit different than almost every other Calvary Chapel out there. Uh, We're a bit of a hybrid in a sense in that way, and uh, but God has been doing wonderful things through this um, model of church government that we have that we see in the New Testament here, and uh, And that is how we are set up here. But you definitely see, regardless of um, all of the different um, methodology, there is a plurality of elders functioning there in every city. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, um, the question there of who is in charge is really answered there as Jesus is called the chief shepherd. He's called the senior pastor, in a sense. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is called the shepherd and overseer. He's the great shepherd of Hebrews chapter 13. And so to reiterate, he's the head of the body. He's really and genuinely the senior pastor. Um, In verses 2 and 3, we move on in our outline through the the text here in 1 Peter 5. Where in verses 2 and 3, we have the task defined. The task defined. So elders are to lead the church, but how are they to lead the church? Well, verse 2 starts out by saying, shepherd the flock of God that is amongst you. Shepherd in the Greek means literally tend as a shepherd, to lead, feed, heed, and protect by prayer, exhortation, government, example, and teaching. Notice that a shepherd is used as an example all throughout the scriptures. Sad for Prineville, though, it's not a cowboy. A cowboy drives from the rear with a bullwhip. <laughs> a shepherd leads from the front in humility. And man, I've seen it as I've been in Israel driving through the desert. I've watched the Bedouin shepherds leading their sheep uh, to the grass. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of our shepherd. In Psalm 23, just to jump around a little bit, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Goes on to say, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me as my shepherd. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23, every time you read it, you should think of Jesus. You should think of the one who leads you, feeds you, heeds you, and protects you. In John chapter 21, 15 through 17, we see a little more on how the elder is to lead. When uh, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and Peter and him have a great reunion after Peter denied Jesus three times, uh, they have a bit of a reconciliation meeting over breakfast. In verse 15 of John 21, when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he'd said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed or pasture my sheep. To look at this beautiful example of feeding and tending and pasturing and feeding, we see that the shepherd is to be feeding the flock from the diet of the word of God. Paul tells us one of the men aspiring to the eldership should possess the ability to teach. We just read it in 1 Timothy 3.2. He encourages those to know sound doctrine and to refute those who would bring false doctrine. By nature, an elder is a doctrinal man, a man of the word. He's the know the truth and to feed it in appropriate doses towards the, the sheep of the flock. This could occur in so many different situations and scenes and scenarios. This could be counseling sessions, Sunday school classes, 242 home groups or midweek studies, a discipleship lesson, teaching other teachers in a school of ministry. Um, Someone might have a ministry of public exposition. Uh, Perhaps uh, he's set apart uniquely for that task. Uh, He's that teaching pastor of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word and to be ready in season and out of season, convincing, rebuking, exhorting with all long suffering. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul met with those Ephesian elders, he said a couple different things. He said, I kept back nothing from you that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you publicly and from house to house. So he's a guy that was always feeding the sheep. Later on in verse 26 of Acts 20, he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. Paul led the charge there in feeding the sheep. And that is one of our charges here. I want to be like Paul and to be able to say at the end of my ministry and my life uh, that I'm innocent of the blood of all men and that I have not shunned to declare to you as a church the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis through Revelation, we all might be a little bit old by the time that happens. Uh, only took 54 weeks to get through the book of Romans, but that's a good start. No 10-week church series in between those books. But as Arta Zerdia said, you want to evaluate the integrity of a church or pastor, a shepherd or a pastor. Resist the criteria set before you today of bodies, bucks, and buildings. The criteria is not the slickness of the church programs, the size of the sanctuary, The criteria is this, does he feed the flock? The shepherd's also to protect the flock. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders that savage wolves will come in from among you. Men who will exploit the sheep for sex or for money or just to stroke their ego or for anything. And so elders are to be men of discernment, being able to point out wolves within a flock. They need to be courageous and act with that uh, clear-headedness, even when everybody else is singing the praises of the wolf, that he seems like such a great guy or such a great gal, but perhaps his motives aren't altogether pure. Something to notice in the John 21, Jesus and Peter reconciliation passage, as well as here in 1 Peter, is that Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. 1 Peter 5 says that it's the flock of gods. That is incredibly Important. It shows the dignity of the office of eldership and that they are overseeing the very possession of God himself. This is my church, he says in Matthew chapter 16. I've purchased her with my blood. What that means is that you, sheep, are so precious. You are so precious. You are so valuable. You're the purchased possession of Christ. So anyone who gets to oversee and lead you, Man, they have a wonderfully dignified and valuable uh, position and function within the church. 
This is incredibly encouraging when the sheep might disappoint the pastor or disregard the pastor or fight or frustrate or anger, be angry towards the pastor or attack or accuse the pastor. The seriousness of the task of elding is determined by the one who owns the sheep. Artaxerxes said, I say this without any equivocation, without any willingness to back down at all. The pastoral ministry is the highest, loftiest, greatest, most noble, no, noble and significant task to which a man can be called. Why is this the case? Because the perks of the job are so great? Because the position brings with it an elevated stature in the community? Because the financial package is so lavish? At the end of the day, it's not even the nature of the work itself. You are a pastor for a brief time, and then you realize shepherding is a dirty business. What makes the pastoral ministry the most elevated task to which God can assign a man? The stature of the people we've been given to shepherd, the flock of God. I've got the greatest job in the world, and yet I don't work a day in my life. That's what somebody once said. You find a job that you love, and you never work a day in your life. Charles Spurgeon said to the men in his pastor's college, if God calls you to do the work of an elder or a pastor, don't stoop down to be a king. And so there's some here in this room that God is calling to be elders or will call. And don't forget what a valuable call that is, that God would call you to oversee his purchased possession. How else is he to lead? How else is he to shepherd? It says that you're to serve as overseers. That means exercising oversight. The Greek word is episkopos. To be a bishop and performing the duties of bishops. Now, the duties of a bishop or an elder is leading, feeding, tending, heeding, protecting, shepherding you and your children, leading the congregation, teaching you, feeding you with gifts and providing for uh, you even monetarily when need be, protecting you from anyone who would do you harm, praying for you, encouraging you, comforting you, weeping with you, rejoicing with you, serving you. But it goes on to show us the manner by which a pastor should be a pastor. And read in 1 Peter chapter 5 with me, that it's not by compulsion, but willingly. That means it's not because you have to do it. It's because you get to do it. Any man that has his arm twisted by the elder board or by the congregation to be an elder, he's forced into eldership because he's been voted into it or it's, he's just doing what he's got to do is a guy that you can't count on to spill his blood for the flock. It's a guy that you don't know will get dirty taking care of the sheep. You don't know what he's going to do when the, ship, when the sheep nip at him or bite him, and they do. Or when the church is in crisis, or when money dries up, or relationships need reconciling, or church discipline needs to take place. Or when his life or the lives of his family are necessary. It's someone that gets to do it. It's someone that is willingly doing it. In 1 Peter 5, 2, we see the motive that he elds and he pastors. Not for dishonest gain. That means he's not greedy for money, but he does it eagerly. This is a thing that appears both in the Old and the New Testament uh, quite a bit. We're to be warned about this temptation. Now, elders, uh, there's some that are in full-time ministry and their salary is paid for, and they also provide the financial oversight according to Acts chapter uh, 11. And so there's this necessity that this is not a guy who is trying to peddle the word of God. He's not in godliness so that he can have great gain financially. He doesn't. In, he's not in the pastorate because he thinks, you know, 
Uh, sucking on peanuts that have already had the chocolate sucked off of them seems like a great job and it's better than hammering nails down. Uh, so he'll do that instead. No, it's because he's had the Holy Spirit call him to do it. And the Bible is chock full of people like Balaam and Gehazi and the sons of Eli who took advantage of and exploited the flock for all kinds of um, poor reasons. And so he's not to be one who is greedy for money to defleece the flock or put his hands in the coffer. Church history tells us in a track that was passed around to early church Christians in the 70 ADs, this track was called the Didache, and it uh, went through things like baptism and the sacraments and explained them, and it went on to say, if a man comes to town claiming to be sent by God and he asks for money, he's a false prophet. All right? So anybody that is greedy for money is someone that should be washed out for. Again, to quote Azurdi, a pastor looking to hire a youth pastor said to me, I want the best man that money can buy. When Art replied, in reality, the best man can't be bought. The best man can't be bought. Good elders are not driven by money. An elder that's driven by money is who Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 11 says that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling is he who's not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and uh, scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. And so the, the hireling doesn't care for the sheep. He's not motivated for a love for the flock, but he's motivated for money and to have his needs met. The beautiful thing is in our chief shepherd and the head of the body, we have an example like Peter's speaking of here, a guy who wasn't forced to or compelled to uh, lay his life down for the sheep, but one who did it willingly and eagerly, one who wasn't greedy for money. In fact, he said, birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes or dens, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so may God give our church more and more shepherds that, can, that the church could say, you know what? They love us. They really, really love us. Moving right along, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3 tells us the method that these pastors are not to be lords over those entrusted to them, but to be examples to the flock. Now, there is an aspect of eldership that is leading and, as the, the language of the word says, ruling. We live in a culture where the young and the adult both cringe and have contempt at the idea of authority over them of any kind. We see that a lot in the church today concerning authority of the word itself, concerning anything, including homosexuality and marriage. Uh, Augustine said, the faith will totter if the authority of scripture loses its hold on men. So the word of God is our authority in everything concerning life and godliness. And if you have trouble bowing under the word of God as your authority, you really need to do a heart check and have the Lord do a heart check to see if you're of the faith. People balk that uh, parents have authority over children, that husbands have a role of leading their wives, that governments are over and ruling their citizens, that pastors and elders have a ruling aspect of their role over the congregation. Peter warns the elders in verse 3 not to exercise lordship over the flock, but that's actually one of the best proofs that the elders are to actually lead, even though it's something that can be abused. And so Peter does not replace abusive leadership with no leadership at all or with passive leadership. But he says, I want you to be leaders of the kind that reflect Jesus Christ himself. One that's an example to the flock. Shepherds means leadership. Overseers speaks of leadership. 
And whatever you want to interpret it, you don't want to interpret it in contradiction to the word of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So over you, admonish you. There's a sign here of absolute uh, definite authority and leadership structure. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who rule and labor, excuse me, labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, remember whipping this verse out on a high school kid back in the day that was uh, quite the thorn in my side. <laughs> now we're friends on Facebook. Um, no, we're actually friends now. Hebrews 13, 17 where strong language is used. Obey those who rule over you. Obey. <laughs> rule. <laughs> and be <laughs> submissive. <laughs> Why? Because they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Obey, submit. Those that rule, that are over, that oversee. They watch out for your souls. They pray. They hold you accountable. Let them do so with joy. Let them pray for you with joy in their prayers over your souls, not with grief. That would be, that'd be no bueno for you. There's conclusive, definitive, and authoritative, respected leadership spoken of in the New Testament as the elders lead. So what is Peter speaking of here? That they wouldn't be lording over the congregation, but rather be examples. This is a style of leadership that is distorted in its heart and tyrannical in its behavior. It's a dictatorialship. And the elders are not to be dictators. Yes, we make decisions. We make the decisions prayerfully. We search the scripture. We get godly counsel. We pray and we fast. And we explain. But not as dictators who say it's the decision that we've made and you better just get on with it or it's going to be poor for your souls. We pray over it. We're open to hearing from you. We search the word. But ultimately, the decision and the oversight is given to the elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the bishops, the overseers as shepherds that are willing to lay their life down for the sheep. The opposite of that is a churchman who is using the sheep for his own agenda. I can say this for Kevin Vaughn and Chad Carpenter and Aaron Mapes and myself, that it's the passion for the flock that drives us. It's the passion for the flock. It's a love for you that drives us. The context of 1 Peter says that rather we're to be clothed with humility, we're to be humble, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, a great argument breaks out between the disciples of who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And actually, it began with James and John asking if they could sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And when the other disciples heard about this little uh, tact, they were greatly displeased among themselves. And Jesus gives a wonderful lecture on leadership there. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, you know the way they lead? They lord it over the people. It's not to be so among you. The greatest among you is going to be your servant. And we have the example of Jesus himself being that. In, Acts, or in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and we are closing up. We have finally the task of the elder rewarded. What is their compensation? In verse 4, it says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The book ends to this exhortation of the elders in verse 1 and verse 4. Both have glory mentioned. Why? Because the task that's listed between these two boundary markers, as markers, as one pastor put it, is nothing short of Herculean. There's got to be some motivation there for the pastors to get chewed out and assaulted and misunderstood and have opposition and false assumptions and rejections and ridicule and mockery and mistrust and forsakenness. And it's glory. Not our glory, but to be near to the glory. You see, in Scripture, wherever glory is mentioned, And so many times it's pointing to Jesus, Jesus being revealed. And so this crown may be a literal crown, but really we see a ton of different crowns being given in the New Testament as rewards. And as I'm going to jump ahead in my notes, Isaiah 28, 5 tells us, in that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of the people. So we're going to be near as a reward. We're going to be near to the glory. We're going to have a great capacity to experience God in heaven. After the chief shepherd appears, after the rapture take place, after we meet him in the sky and we go through the Bema seat judgment, the judgment not for salvation, but a reward ceremony there in the heavens that 1 Corinthians speaks of. And in that reward ceremony, those that are faithful as deacons to do what we've read of today, they'll receive that crown of glory, essentially being close to Jesus and having a capacity that really, really, really gets to just experience him. Now, that doesn't sound fair, Rory. Doesn't everybody go to heaven? Doesn't everybody get to be with Jesus? Everybody does. But the capacity is a bit different. Similar to this, as I heard one analogy given. Um, You know, if we all went to the Newsboys concert last week, right? Many of you did go there. Um, There's three different friends that go. Stephanie, Erica, and Leandra, okay? Uh, (laughs) One of the friends may have never played an instrument in their life. They just love to listen to the newsboys. It brings a tear to their eyes. And so they can go there and stomp their feet and ah, with the best of them, has a wonderful time. The second, and we know that was Leandra. The second individual, you know, you know, took guitar lessons as a child and, and understands the discipline and understands the hours that goes into being able to do that and drum upside down. Apparently he had like a spinning drum platform. Like, how can you do that? Well, because there was a lot of hours that went into that. I really appreciate that. I even understand a little bit about the composition of the music. And so I really, I appreciate this concert in a way that person number one doesn't quite appreciate because of this, you know, capacity that I have for music. Then the third person that goes, graduated from Oregon State's music school, has a bachelor in, or has a a master's in music composition, has, you know, written, you know, the Titanic theme song music and all of that stuff, and understands everything about music. And so when they go to this concert, it's just completely like, oh my gosh, did the rapture just happen? Because this is the most fantastic thing. I understand everything that's going on. That drum thing is a trick. He's not really doing that. Uh, And by the end of the concert, everybody's like, woo, that was amazing. But they've experienced it in different capacities. I think that's what we see. And just to help explain, 
is that people that are serving the Lord, and that goes on all sorts of different levels of rewards that are given in the New Testament, pastors are giving a crown of glory. They're giving this, this special place to be able to be near to Jesus and, and a capacity to experience him in, in eternity that's special and privileged. Uh, if the reward for faithful elders was the same for all Christians, then there would have been no point for Peter to even bring this up. In this chapter, he already mentioned the reward given to all Christians. Uh, or in chapter 1, he did, actually. Uh, and so this reward is one distinct and different than just every Christian gets. And so everyone will think Christian is, uh, will think heaven is wonderful. Not one person will be unsatisfied in heaven but our capacity for enjoying God and appreciating God will be different. And so I encourage you that uh, if you're a man here uh, and, and you look at the qualifications for elders, I want you to ask yourself, how are they different from any other qualification of just being a Christian? I want you to look at that. I want you to go home, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and say, oh, thank goodness. Man, I can be given over to wine. <laughs> Not going to be an elder, you know. I'm going to have six wives. Woo! You know, okay, so... All right, Christian men really is the description here, except for that gifting or that ability to teach. And so I encourage you men. I think there's actually way more men called to be elders in the churches these days than, than we really see, all right? Um, same with deacons, all right? There's wonderful opportunity for you to serve in this church. And so I just, I just say, man, go home today and say, Lord, what would you have of me? Are you calling me to anything today? To an elder position? Or maybe I should start learning how to teach. To a deacon position. The conclusion as the worship team comes on up. Who are the elders? Men who are motivated by the internal compulsion of the Holy Spirit. They're willing and eager. They're morally, spiritually, and ministerially qualified. They function in a plurality that simultaneously unleashes the unique gifts of individual elders. They're appointed by the Holy Spirit. They're clearly recognized in the church. They're worthy of honor. They will receive a reward of a greater capacity to enjoy Christ. And so, obligations that we have to this local church, you have the obligation, if you consider this your local church, to submit and obey to the godly leadership that God has placed and appointed over this congregation. But in that, you also have the wonderful privilege to be led, to be fed, to be tended, to be considered, to be cared for, to be loved. And that's on us. That's on us as elders. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.